starting this evening in Job chapter 1, where you'd expect to begin. We're beginning this series, and I feel that, in a sense, we are setting out in a little boat into deep waters, because the book of Job wrestles with weighty issues concerning suffering and faith and endurance and, ultimately, the demonstration of the glory of God in the lives of His people. The book of Job is not an easy book to read or study. Most of us find, I would guess, that we can get a lot out of the beginning of the book and the end of the book of Job, but the middle, those extensive cycles of debate between Job and his three so-called friends, that middle part is not easy to work through and wrestle through and understand. In fact, even the very structure of the book of Job seems to bring home a sense of the burden and agony and the long, drawn-out nature of the sufferings of Job and his lament. And chapters 1 and 2, if you maybe have the NIV text or other translations reflect this, are in prose. Chapters 1 and 2 in prose, and then chapter 3, it begins a long, poetic section of the book and your translation may have it in that kind of um, arrangement. And though for, for 39 chapters, you get this poetry. And it doesn't come to back to the prose until the very last part of chapter 42, the very ending of the book, the epilogue, as it were. So even that kind of gives you a sense of the structure of the book. And this evening, we want to set out on this journey by looking at the first few verses of chapter 1, but also looking at some of the main themes that we'll see in this book. So, let's read God's Word, Job chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, and he owned 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 donkeys, and had a large number of servants. He was the greatest man among all the people of the East. His sons used to take turns holding feasts in their homes, and they would invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have them purified, Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. Let's pray. Father, we do ask for your help as we begin our study in this book, as we seek to plumb the depths of what you have revealed about yourself to us in this book, and we thank you that you have not remained silent, but that you are God who has spoken and ultimately, and above all, spoken in the person and work of Your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we pray that You would grant us wisdom to understand more of You and more of Your grace to us in Christ as we study this book. Through Jesus we ask it. Amen. These first few verses of the book of Job give us a snapshot, we might say, of the person of Job, just a a glimpse of what Job was like, what his life was like, who was this man. And we see here a picture of Job's reverence for God, his love for his family and spiritual concern for them and others as well, we're sure. And we see also that Job is a, is a man of 
of great wealth. Verse 3 tells us that he was the greatest man among all the people of the East. He's thinking of that area of Palestine and what we would think of as the fertile crescent going over to the areas where Abraham originally was from. We're not sure exactly where Job lived, but it's likely that he, looked in the area, that he lived in the area of Palestine. Many scholars believe that Job lived near to the time of Abraham, which was about 2000 or 1900 B.C., and probably not far from the area where Abraham came to journey to as well. Well, if that's the case, then we get a little insight into Job's wealth and position and status by comparing him to Abraham. If we just think about Abraham for a moment here, Abraham, we know, was very wealthy as well. He became very wealthy. God blessed him in this way. And in Genesis 14, verse 14, we learn that Abraham had 318 trained men. You know that he goes to war at one point against these kings. So he had 318 trained men born into his household, almost like a little army he had and that he used at that one point. And we think about that and we think, well, if in Abraham's case, when you start thinking about wives, children, servants, all of that, you understand that it would have been likely that there would have been probably a thousand plus people under Abraham's extended care. Now, if that was true for Abraham, just think of the the wealth of Job, the status and the position of Job, probably surpassing that of Abraham because they lived about the same time. And Job is said to be here uh, the greatest man among all the people of the East. So, I don't know how you tend to think of Job when you think of this book. Maybe you think of him just living in this kind of little house and, you know, in the land of Israel there and his sons and daughters maybe living in not far away from him, you know. But do you think of the type of lifestyle a man like Job would have had? Here was a very accomplished, competent, busy, respected, hardworking man. And he is involved with people around him. Think of all the individuals that would be part of his life in some way. And he has to, to uh, have many of practical cares upon him in terms of all that is demanded of him. In fact, later we, we will also learn that Job is very wise and compassionate in the use of his wealth. As he talks later on in the cycle of the debates, and he talked about how he used his wealth to help to care for the poor and those less fortunate that were around him. This part of the picture of him comes out as well. It's almost like Job is the mayor of a small city or town, or maybe you could think of him as a president of a large company with people under him and who works very hard for the good of everyone who's dependent upon him. But the real emphasis here in the opening verses of the book is the blamelessness of Job. Verse 1 begins with this theme. It says, there was a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. This is not to say that Job was sinless or without sin in any way, but we could speak of him in terms of being an Old Testament believer. That's how I think we are to think about Job. He is a godly man. He was blameless in that sense. He feared God. He trusted the Lord. He loved the Lord, we could say. He shunned evil in his life. 
And his righteousness is what we would call, looking at it from a New Testament perspective, we would call it imputed righteousness, a righteousness from God. Just as Abraham was, had this righteousness that was credited to him based on his faith. We believe that that's likewise true for Job. Through faith, just like Abraham, Job had a righteousness from God, but a righteousness that showed up in his life in righteous living. He shunned evil. There was a practical outworking of this righteousness in his life. Now, I know I'm reading back, in a sense, with a New Testament eye to that, but I think that we can rightly conclude that. Job was blameless. He was upright. And this is going to be a very crucial matter as the book of Job unfolds for us. It's repeated both times that Satan comes before God and wants to afflict Job, or actually the Lord sets this before Satan. If we look further down, we didn't read this part, and we won't be getting into it until next week, but if you look at verse 8, then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There was no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And then further on down, if you look at chapter 2, verse 3, there it is again. Then the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity though you incited me against him to ruin him without any reason. So you see that repeated theme at the beginning of the book of Job. Both times that I just read for you here, a declaration from the very mouth of God himself. This is very crucial information, isn't it, as you read the book of Job? But we will see that it is information that Job's friends don't have. No one has this information. None of his family, none of his former friends, none of those who used to uh, speak up for him or respect him, and none of those who are mocking him in the streets now, none of these people have this information. In fact, Job himself doesn't have this information. He believes this is true, but he begins to doubt it in a sense and wonder what's going on here. But everyone else is sure that Job is not blameless, and so the counsel of these friends, especially, is always misdirected because they don't know this. So that's going to be a very crucial fact. But one of the other things that we see here at the beginning in this brief snapshot is that Job is a man of worship and prayer as well. Nothing says more about a person than the way he or she prays. Here's Job. Think of him now as we've briefly come to understand what his life is like. A very busy man, but he manages to make time to do what we read about here at the beginning. He manages to make time for pray for his children and to offer sacrifices on their behalf, these burnt offerings he's offering to God. So, he's a man of of worship, a man of prayer who can find time and does find time to do that in his busy life. Job clearly believed in the efficacy of mediation with God as he seeks to go to God on their behalf. And interestingly, Job even shows a grasp of the way the gospel, or we could say grace, extends even to unconscious or inadvertent sins. I'm not going to make a big point of this, but 
But look at what he says as he, as he offers up these burnt offerings in verse 5. He says, perhaps my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. This was Job's regular custom. So, Job is a man of prayer. Here we have Job then, a man greatly blessed by God. This man had a very blessed life, a man who loved the Lord, who reverenced the Lord, a a spiritually-minded man, a man blessed with family and wealth and position and power. And by the standard theology of Job's day, a theology that even Job himself held to, Job's blessedness demonstrated that he was right with God. You see, that was the theology of the day. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. And if you trust in the Lord and fear the Lord and obey the Lord, God will bless you. You will be blessed in all of these ways. And Job was blessed in all these ways. So up until, really, chapter 1, when the afflictions begin, nobody would have had a hard time who knew Job saying, well, Job was a godly man, and Job is blessed, and those things go hand in hand, and that makes sense. But what's going to happen when Job loses everything? Does that mean that Job is really a bigger sinner than everybody else? That's what Job's going to struggle with because he he knows he's not but it seems to be that he's suffering in a way that showed that. And that's what the three friends are going to insist on again and again and again. In fact, we're going to be getting tired of hearing their refrain. Really, there are no theological categories, it seems, in that day to explain what was happening here. But the reader knows that that is not the case. Job wasn't a bigger sinner than everybody else. And so we are going to learn some important things about God and what He is doing in the sufferings of His people. And we're going to see how it points us ahead to Christ. Well, so much for some initial observations just to orient us about Job. Let's now spend most of our time with an overview of three of the main themes in the book of Job. And on the third theme, I'm going to break that up into three applications or subpoints. So, let's look at some of these main themes that we will see in this book. And if you decide to try to work your way through this book on your own, I hope that you will be thinking about some of these themes and seeking to apply them as you do so. The first theme that we're going to look at is that the book of Job teaches us about God's wisdom and purposes. God's wisdom. The question we might ask as we approach this book is, does Job ever find out why he suffered as he did? We know. We read chapters 1 and 2, and we know what's going on behind the scenes. Does Job ever find that out? No, he doesn't. Yes, God finally speaks to Job out of the storm, out of the whirlwind, but when God finally speaks, he doesn't explain anything. He just questions Job and says, Job, Do you know how to do this? Do you know how to make the sun rise, Job? You know, I'm the creator. I'm God. And the clear overriding message of the book is that God is God. And God's wisdom is ultimate. 
And you and I do not have that kind of wisdom. And Job didn't have that kind of wisdom. Job never found out why he was suffering. But God revealed himself to Job. And in a sense, he reassured Job when finally that point in the book comes that he is God and that he is sovereign and that he is just and good and all-wise. And so Job can trust the, what we might say, the incomprehensible wisdom of God, incomprehensible to us, not incomprehensible to God. And Job needed to trust this God, and he needed to reverence and worship this God above all. And Job should not expect to be able to understand the outworkings of the wisdom of God. I read Tim Keller's new book, uh, The Reason for God, an excellent book, and really aimed at the modern individual who has such a difficulty with Christianity and different objections that naturally rise. In fact, the first half of this book is Tim Keller answering the eight major objections to Christianity that he has heard in the past 20 years in his church planting work in Manhattan. And for many of those years, he answered questions for an hour after each worship service of the day, and he would get the same questions over and over and over again. And one of those questions is, the very familiar one probably to most of us, how can there be a good and all-powerful God when there is so much suffering in the world, especially such senseless suffering? Keller does just a masterful job of answering these, but in this particular point, he points out that the problem with this objection is a gigantic presupposition that the objector brings in asking this. And that is, you and I, if there is a God, should be able to understand the suffering in the world. In other words, I'm holding God accountable to the wisdom that I have. And I can't believe that there's a God if there is suffering that I can't see the reason for. And Keller just works with this at some length there. And he says, the logic of this objection is kind of along these lines. Well, I can't see any reason for it, so there must not be any reason for it, and so there must not be any God. And he says, do you realize how arrogant that is? You're just saying, if there's not a God who is limited just like you are and thinks just like you are and only knows what you know, then there can't be any kind of a God. In other words, you've ruled out the very godness of God because he would know a lot more. What an inconsistent line of reasoning that is. You're requiring that you have wisdom like God's wisdom. We would ask, what kind of God would that make God out to be if that were the case? Well, the book of Job gives us a glimpse of God's incomprehensible wisdom. And maybe this is something that you need to apply to your life where you're struggling with suffering or something in your life right now. Maybe the life of a loved one. And this is no small thing to really work through and to deal with before God. Because you may know in your mind about God's wisdom and the fact that His wisdom is above ours, but in terms of contentment, practically speaking, and resting in God in your own life day to day and daily continuing to find your joy in the Lord, 
That's no easy thing. If you're struggling with why certain suffering is going on in your life. And I would say, learn from the book of Job. The book of Job can help you in this regard. Because here's a case where we see behind the scenes, we see what God's doing at the beginning, we see the final outcome. Job has to live through all this. He never sees all that. We get to see it. And and at the same time, the Bible tells us that's true for all of us who trust in Christ. I'm reading a biography of Harry Truman right now by the author uh, David McCullough, who has written some other good books. And really, the beginning, the first half of his life, till he's about 40 or 50 years old, it just seems like it's one setback after the next. He has some successes, but it's one failed business endeavor after the next, going into debt, this oil kind of business fails, his clothing business fail. Uh, He finally gets into politics, but it doesn't work out very well, and he gets associated with, for the rest of his life, these political bosses in Kansas who are corrupt, but he really did not stoop to what they did. He was not, he did not become dishonest like that, but he's associated with them, and he's dogged by these past associations the rest of his life. And I finally, in the part of the book where where Harry Truman gets elected vice president, and just a short time after that, FDR dies. The war is about to end, and Harry is standing there, president of the United States. And I've known that the whole time I was reading this book. I knew that at the beginning of the book when he was going to debt, I knew in the back of my mind, he's going to become president. You know, so I wasn't too worried about it. I figured he's going to get there somehow. I didn't know how it was going to come out. I didn't know much about the man. But lo and behold, it happened. You see, I knew the end of the book. Now, I hope that what you're seeing is that if you're struggling with something that apparently God is doing or not doing in your life right now, you're just where Job was and where all of us are. It's where Harry was during those times of his life that he didn't know whether he was going to succeed or not. Of course, our goal is not success in a worldly way. Our goal is the glory of God demonstrated in our lives as we trust in Him. And so, I would urge you, go deeper in your trust in God and in His incomprehensible wisdom as you read through this book. And I hope that you'll be able to come to the point that even the Apostle Paul came to when you read that doxology at the end of chapter 11 of Romans, when Paul could write, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable His judgments and His paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been His counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay Him for From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. I just wonder how long it took the Apostle Paul to come to a deep and abiding rest in that truth. And we need to work at that as well by the grace of God, that we would trust the wisdom of God in our lives. The second major theme that I want us to see here is that the book of Job points ahead to Jesus Christ. The suffering of righteous Job, and I put quotes around that word, righteous Job, righteous in the sense that I've already explained, the sufferings of righteous Job foreshadow 
the sufferings of Jesus Christ. When you think back to Job's day and the fact that revelation given by God is progressive, so that what Adam and Eve knew, they hardly knew anything. They knew of a, a seed who would crush the serpent's head. We think of revelation progressively unfolding. Well, Job didn't know that much. Job lived before Moses, before the Ten Commandments, before the book of Genesis was written. Yes, they had an oral tradition passed down. We don't know how in-depth that was. But they certainly didn't know what we know living in the light of the full day of New Testament glory. Jesus Christ has come. He's lived. He's died. He's risen from the dead. We know so much more. Job was a sinner, yet he was blameless in one sense, and he suffered deeply. Who does that sound like? A righteous person who would suffer deeply. Well, he points ahead to the true righteous one, the true sinless one, Jesus Christ. And we know that on the cross, the goodness and the justice of God meet the mercy of God so that God is able to fulfill the demands of His holiness and righteousness and yet still receive sinners to Himself through what Jesus did. What an amazing mystery that's now revealed in Christ. And all that Job yearned for, and if you read through the book of Job and if you follow along with us in the weeks to come and you think of Job's lament and Job's complaints and Job's wrestling and prayer and praying and crying out to God. It's interesting, as you read all the debates, the friends never pray. It seems like Job is moving back and forth into prayer all the time. Job is a man of prayer. He never loses that. Yes, sometimes he's complaining to God, lamenting, and things like that. But all that Job yearned for is really finally found only in Jesus Christ, the one mediator. And Job was looking eventually for an advocate, the one advocate with God. Colossians 2 says, in Christ, in Him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All the wisdom of God is summed up and found in Jesus Christ. So, the book of Job points ahead in a shadowy way, and we must read the book of Job in light of this New Testament knowledge that we have. And we, when we look for wisdom in our lives apart from Christ, we find only foolishness. But when we come to Christ by faith, God gives us wisdom in Christ. You see, wisdom begins with faith in Christ and submitting to Christ and trusting in Him. And Job had a very shadowy understanding of these things, but we have the full light of day. I think of it like this game that I play with my grandsons. We have this little chalkboard in our house, and when they come over, one of the games we've started to play, I don't know how we got into this, is I draw a treasure map on the chalkboard. You know, I say, oh, here's a creek, and here's a mountain, and there's a fence, and there's a river, and I show this little path. You know, it's very rudimentary, and there's an X at the end, and there's a treasure at the end. And so, we're in the family room, and, you know, I've hidden some little toys or something under pillow of the couch, and we go through the river and over the mountain, and we get to the treasure. Now, if any of you were to look at that map, you probably wouldn't really understand it. You know, it's so rudimentary. And I can just imagine me saying, 
I'm going to draw you a chalk drawing of Lancaster. And any of you who live there would look at it and say, that's Lancaster? No, you live here. You know what Lancaster is like. It's beautiful. You know the fields and the beauty of it. You'd look at that chalk drawing and you think, I don't think so, John. That doesn't look like Lancaster to me. But, you know, that's the difference between what Job had. It's like Job had the chalk drawing of Lancaster and you live here. Is there any similarity between, well, the river, maybe the Conestoga, you know, but that's a lot different on a little chalkboard, right? That, I want you to keep that in your mind. It's like Job is living with the chalk drawing. And when Jesus comes, there's the reality. That's how bad it was in a sense. That's how hard it was. Now we live in Lancaster. We live in New Testament glory. Jesus Christ has come. Job should point us to Jesus Christ. We shouldn't just stop with this book of Job. We should be relating it to Jesus Christ. And when you think about your suffering and and when you find that going is very hard in your life in some way, seek to drink more deeply from the reality, from Jesus Christ, the sinless one who has died, in which the mercy and the holiness of God have met. And let your faith be in Him. Hold on to Him as He holds on to you. Well, that brings me to my third main point, and there are a couple sub-points here, and that is another main theme of the book of Job is that Job speaks to people in suffering. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? But I don't want us to lose sight of that. But what is the message of the book of Job to people who are suffering? And I want us to make three applications of this at this point, and we'll see these as we go throughout the book as well. The first one is this, and that is, what is ultimately at stake in the suffering of God's people is the demonstration of God's glory, the demonstration of God's glory, His supreme worth. What's ultimately at stake when we suffer is somehow, in some way, the glory of God being revealed being demonstrated to a watching world, to the angelic hosts as we trust in Him, as we reverence Him as Job did. We will see this more as we look at chapters 1 and 2. And it's like a heavenly battle going on. And God says to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? And we think, Lord, what are you, why are you pointing out Job? Well, it's because God is going to demonstrate His supreme worth in his servant Job. And because of it, Job's going to suffer a lot. It's going to be an avenue to bring glory to God, and the same with you and with me. God delights in demonstrating His supreme worth in our lives. And the question is not why is there suffering in this world, but the question for us is, will we worship God in suffering? Will we trust in our Redeemer in suffering? And I hope that we will resolve to say yes, but that we will also say, Lord, give me grace to do so. I'm going back to this biography of Harry Truman, and he finally, uh, April 12th, 1945, the war is about to end, FDR suddenly has a stroke and dies. Harry Truman finds out about it at about 5 o'clock at night. By 7.09 that night, he is sworn in. And he's just shaken. 
because the task before him is so great, ending the war, uniting the world in a sense, reconstruction after the war. He knows it's going to be a giant, colossal task. And it's interesting, one of the first things he does when he comes into the office to the White House the next day is he he does something unprecedented and that FDR would never have done, and that he goes to Congress to meet with leaders of both Democrats and Republicans both. Most of them he knows very well, and he basically has lunch with them, and he says, I need your help. I'm going to need your help. Very wise move. I think some people in the former FDR administration didn't like it at all. They thought it lowered his status and so forth, but I think it pictures for us that when you face something great and colossal like that, anyone who's really wise knows that they are in desperate need of help. And so, if we're thinking about the, the, the great task of the glory of God, the demonstration of the supreme worth of God, I hope that we will be on our knees before God saying, Lord, You must do this. You must keep me faithful. You must help me to trust you in suffering and continue to worship you for your sake and for the glory of Christ. It reminds me of 2 Corinthians 12, where Paul's talking about the thorn in the flesh, his thorn in the flesh. Patty and I gave our testimonies to youth group a couple weeks ago, and I talked about this verse because I explained to them that there was a time in my life that I couldn't make a telephone call without stuttering. I couldn't even talk on the phone. I couldn't give a speech in speech class in 10th grade and talking to the youth about this. And I was talking about the theme verse in my life is 2 Corinthians 12 where, where Paul ends up saying, but he said to me, the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. The only reason Paul could boast about weaknesses was for a higher goal that Christ's power might rest on him and so that the glory of Jesus Christ might be revealed. That is why for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, Paul goes on to say, for the sake of Jesus Christ. And we certainly are in need of His help for that demonstration of the supreme worth of God to take place in our lives. And so, there is that goal. But secondly, under this third point, in their sufferings, God's people need God. God's people need personal contact with God, and that also comes out in the book. As I said, the question in the book of Job is not why is there suffering, but how does Job, or we might elaborate that and say, how does any believer maintain faith in God in the midst of severe suffering? And the ultimate answer for Job in this book as it unfolds is that what ultimately was the answer for Job was God's presence and God's Word. Finally, God did speak to Job in the whirlwind, in the storm, and He spoke to him, we might say, pretty sternly and presented Himself as God and spoke His Word to Job, but that's what Job needed. And so it is for us as well. If it's a great trial we're going through or even the normal, ordinary trials and sufferings of hardships that come into our life every day, every week with their ups and downs, nothing that would merit a book being written about us like this. But whether it's a great or small affliction, we need God's presence. We need God's Word 
in order to respond in trust in Him. And as Job's trial stretches on and on, and all Job gets eventually from these so-called friends is condemnation and wrong theology, what Job really needs in all that is he needs God. He needs the presence of God. And even though Job never gets an answer from God in terms of why he had to go through this, he never stops praying, he never stops lamenting, he never stops pleading with God, and finally God answers and graciously gives him himself and his word. And you and I need that as well. And God gives that to us, and he gives it to us over and over. In fact, he's given us his spirit to dwell in us. He's given us Jesus Christ whoever lives to make intercession for us. He's given us His written Word, and His Spirit brings that to our hearts and minds. And so that is the same need that we have daily and in the very depths of suffering. We need the presence and the Word of God. But finally, in their suffering, God's people need full and final restoration. And this is really the message of the epilogue of the book. So now we're at the end of the book, but you're not going to hear this maybe again for a long time, so you'll hear it more in depth then. But when Job is finally restored after God meets with him, Job's restoration has a greater significance. It points to the new heavens and the new earth. And that's what every believer ultimately needs, full and complete restoration when we see Jesus and when He inaugurates the new heavens and the new earth. That is our ultimate hope. We've been hearing the last few weeks in the morning, Jesus is coming again. That's the blessed hope, and that is a full and glorious hope. And when He comes, He's going to right every wrong, and justice is going to rain down, and He's going to wipe away every tear. And that's our ultimate hope. There are many things in this life that are going to be in our lives that are only going to be partially healed or partially restored or partially made right, and some not at all. And we're going to live the rest of our lives and die with it that way, but that's not the end. There's a glory to come. And the book of Job points us to that. And in the New Testament, again, we have that revealed in a fuller way. It's amazing, I think,